Podcast. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, good afternoon and welcome along to the programme. I'm Justin Briley, your host for The Profile today, uh, brought to you as usual in association with Premier Christianity magazine. If you'd like a free sample copy of the latest edition of the mag, do go online to premierchristianity.com slash free sample. We'd be delighted to send you one. Uh, this programme is the place where we meet all kinds of interesting, different Christians from all different walks of life. And today on the show, I'm meeting John Dixon. He's a Bible scholar. He's an ordained Anglican minister and author of more than a dozen books, including his most recently published A Doubter's Guide to Jesus. He's also the founding director of the Centre for Public Christianity in Australia. CPX, as it's known, was launched to engage the public with a clear, measured and respectful picture of the Christian faith and the way it can impact all of life for the good. And John's also going to tell us about the most recent major project from CPX, a documentary called For the Love of God, How the Church is Better and Worse than you ever imagined. John, thank you so much for being with me on the programme. Great today. to be with you, Justin. It's, it's lovely to have you. Um, let's talk, first of all, about um, you uh, growing up. <laughs> Before we get to any of the interesting stuff I've just mentioned, um, it'd be great to hear about your own background. Were you born into a Christian family? No, um, classic Aussie household, uh, which is no religion. Um, and I grew up in a very uh, stable home at one level. Um, I did lose my father in a plane crash when I was nine. And so obviously that mm. upset things quite dramatically. But we'd never been inside a church. Um, as I understand it, uh, when my parents met, mum did go to church on a Sunday. Dad went to the races on a Sunday. And Sunday was their only day to catch up. So they sacrificed the races and, uh, and church and uh, then raised their kids without any right. connection. Mm. I'd never been inside a church till mm. I was maybe 16. Gosh. But I had um, a hunch about spiritual things. I can remember as a 10-year-old saying the Lord's Prayer in the old-fashioned form. Had no idea what God was doing art in heaven for. It, it, the whole thing <laughs> made no sense to me. But uh, I said it nonetheless. Yes. And when I eventually did become a Christian, um, I thought it was near miraculous that I had already intuited that prayer that the Christians pray. Yeah. You know, it's like a miracle. Yeah. Um, until many years later, I was preaching in a church as an assistant minister and told the story of how I'd miraculously known the Lord's Prayer before I'd ever been in a church. And this woman came up to me saying, don't be ridiculous, John. I was your babysitter when you were nine and I taught you the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> Brilliant. So, <laughs> Slightly punctured your uh, illusions of, of some miraculous downloading of the Lord's Prayer. But indeed, hey. indeed. But it was a, a teacher at school who in uh, year nine, so about 15, 16 years of age, was um, clever, mm -hmm. um, funny, generous and Christian. Right. And it was really through asking her questions um, that I figured that Christianity had more to it than mm. I had realized and found myself drawn uh, to the person of Christ. She did what would now be illegal, mm. uh, and that is invite the class to her home on oh, wow. Friday afternoons oh, wow. right. after school yeah. uh, for hamburgers, milkshakes, and scones. Mm. My mates and I turned up, ate her food, and thought, we'll put up with her religion bit and then get out of here. Um, and we ate her food and it was delightful. And then she brought out the Bible and we thought, oh, no, maybe she's a witch or something. She's gonna... 
But she uh, had, a, had a marvelous strategy. She just fielded our questions. And I did have a few questions. And we came back the next Friday and the next and the next. And she decided to read us the four Gospels because she knew we knew nothing. So she thought, well, if I'm going to get one bite with these mm, lads, mm. the person of Jesus. And uh, she was right. It was really the wow. person of Jesus that captivated me. And I pivoted somehow around 16 years of age from a fan of Jesus to a follower. And what did that look like for you in terms of where it took you next? Did it mean you kind of had to, even as a 16-year-old, start to reassess the things you were doing, the way you were living your life? There was a bit of that. Um, I had been in trouble a little bit uh, with the police. Nothing dramatic, but dramatic enough to you know, worry my mother. And, um, you know, I'd gone to child psychologists who thought it was my dad's plane crash that had really, you know, caused me to act out. Um, I just think I was a jerk. And and I just wanted everything to go my way. And so I hardly worked at school. I I got into quite a few fights. I was a bit of a, a bully in those days. And I think that might have been the most instant change. Uh, the realization that this one that I'd come to be enamored with in the Gospels was not a bully. Mm. Immense power combined with humility. And so that messed with my head. And I think the idea that I loved him and he loved me made me think, oh, well, you know, I should probably not pick fights. Yeah. And... uh and the rest, as they say, is history in terms of you're, you're still obviously going strong years and years later. Um, when did sort of a call to ministry in the church begin? And, and tell us about the bit along the way where you were also uh, in a rock band. Well, in some ways, uh, the rock band was part of what I thought uh, I should do to promote yeah. Christ. Mm. So from a very young age of Christian faith, 16, 17 I thought, how, how can we get this out? This is amazing news. Mm. It's terrible that so few people know about it. And um, my mates and I thought we should start a band. We thought we had invented Christian music, I'm ashamed <laughs> to say. Uh, we had been uh, blissfully kept from Christian music in those days um, and thought, you know, we would do this amazing thing of play in pubs and clubs and talk about our faith between songs and the world would become Christian. Which is not a bad ambition to have, let's say, uh, though obviously you weren't the first to invent that concept. We, we soon found that out. <laughs> and uh, we, but the band uh, was pretty successful. Um, we played all through our final years of school in pubs and clubs, but eventually it took off as a full-time thing and, and I got to tour the world with my best mates yeah. who had also become Christians with me through this teacher um, around the world for six years. And what kind of crowds were you playing to? Was it mainly Christians or was it a mixed? Uh, mixed. Sometimes, uh, originally it was all just pubs and clubs. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, uh, eventually uh, churches would hear about us and hear that w- we not only played music that was acceptable, uh, <laughs> we would talk about our faith between mm. songs. So mm. churches would get together in towns all around Australia and invite us yeah. to come and play in their local pubs, mm. uh, uh, town hall, schools, prisons, um, and not so much churches. And... Uh, you know, we would just play that town, maybe five to six shows a week yeah. in the town and share our faith. And uh, so churches were our benefactors, as it were, but not our audiences. So it was, in that sense, quite an evangelistic kind of 
It was, yeah. It were, we were really yeah. trying to promote Christ. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we, what kind of success did you see with that? I mean, uh, I think these days, you know, even many Christians are a bit wary of being too overt with your faith if hmm. you're in a rock band or something. Yeah. Because I think lots of bands who are Christians that start up kind of are wary of being pigeonholed, you know, into yeah. the I'm... Well, we we had Christian no sub-genre. expectations because we yeah. thought we'd invented it. Exactly. Uh, so we <laughs> had no idea about these there. issues. Yeah, and we <laughs> we did have occasions where uh, people threw their beer cans at us in the pub. As soon as I <laughs> started I would, you know, preaching, I'd say uh, this. Well, I'd go. This next song is about um, uh, the love of the Creator, and many people would. Just, but before I'd got into my little spiel about how people might dispute <laughs> that, I had a beer can thrown directly <laughs> in my head. Um, uh, this is the Manning Bar of Sydney University, which is ironic because I now teach at Sydney University. Um, but, uh, you know, some, often people just put up with it. Yeah. And sometimes we would speak uh, for 10 minutes between songs. It looked like a long song introduction. What success did we have? I mean, you know, one has to leave those sorts of things uh, yeah. to the Lord. But I meet people regularly uh even today, mm. uh, who became Christians wow. through that. The mail we got as a band, and this is back when people did write <laughs> letters. No emails back <clears throat> then. No email. Um, was so great that we had to take a day off a week. So oh. we were full time, mm. uh, but a day off a week just to reply to our mail. Amazing. And very little of it was, we love you. <laughs> that all went to the guitarist, not to me. <laughs> um, most of it was, when you said this about God, what did you mean? Or... Okay, I think I want to be a Christian, but no one in my family is. Mm. And, and, and we just um, had to write letters yeah. a day a week. And I think that was probably where I learned to write. Mm. Um, in fact, I think my first couple of books were probably just the best letters that I'd written hundreds of times mm. to mm. teenagers yeah. struggling to know what Christianity meant. Wow. Um, do you do you play guitar yourself? Was that your instrument? I was the lead singer. singer. I was the lead singer and principal songwriter. Uh, So I played guitar well enough to write songs (laughs) and rarely on stage, maybe two songs a concert. I was not very good. I'm still not very good. It's a bit like Bono in U2. He very occasionally gets the guitar out, but leaves the tricky stuff to edge, basically. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I I love that comparison. Just like Bono. Just like Bono. It's official. Um, I, I mean... That obviously was an important part of your life in the, mm. I guess, eighties and early nineties. Late eighties, early nineties, yeah. Yeah, um, and uh, what kind of took you on a journey then to eventually, obviously, go beyond that and go into kind of what you're doing today? In a sense, related but quite different: uh, mm. biblical scholarship, mm. um, Anglican ministry, and of course, latterly founding this uh, Center for Public Christianity. It's all just I want to make Christ public. Mm. The, to me, it is one thing that I've been doing since the band days. Mm. And even the writing of books, really, as I said, came out of the letters I'd have to write to people mm. who wanted to know more about the Christian faith. Um, so writing just seemed like a great way to um, promote Christ. I'd written my first two books, I think, before I'd gone to theological college. But the, the reason I went to college was it, it dawned on us all that we could very easily end up in 10 years down the track. Um, completely shallow, you know, impressive at one level, you know, loud PA, light show, songs, then move on to the next town, but Mm. completely shallow because I was saying the same things between songs in that town and that town and that town. Mm -hmm. And it worried us actually. So we disbanded. 
mm-hmm. um, with half a mind to get back together mm-hmm. after a degree in theology. Um, I now laugh at that expectation. But uh, <laughs> three of us from the band and two of our crew mm. went to theological college. Yeah. And we were the only ones at college uh, not to have degrees already. So we were nervous as anything. We were just musos <laughs> who'd come out of high school and had been full time. <clears throat> and um, ended up loving it and doing really well in it. Mm-hmm. And um, because I'd done well in it, I, I enrolled straight away after my degree in a postgraduate uh, degree and then pivoted to ancient history, uh, which I pursued at, a, at an academic level. Um, I also, uh, somewhere in there, started to work for a local church mm. because I was pretty convinced, despite how um, helpful running around the country singing and speaking was to people, probably the best argument for Christianity are those little Christian communities mm. in the suburbs and cities that are really living out the Christian faith. Um, so I wanted to get in on that. Yep. And f- since since those days, right up to, to today, I've pretty much been a half-time minister mm. in, uh, in in just two churches uh, where I've uh, done that ministry. Um, so e- even today, I'm I'm still a half-time minister of a Anglican church in the suburbs. And that goes alongside the academic side of what you And do. then the other half of my life is everything yeah. else. Yeah, sure. So it's very simple. It's just two things. <laughs> it's just church and everything else. <laughs> and uh, the everything else, yeah, is a little bit of academics. Uh, so um, I, I did my ancient history um, at Macquarie University in Sydney, which is a very large ancient history department, and specialized in the origins of Christianity in the Roman world, uh, which seemed to be helpful mm. for me to make Christ public. Yeah. Uh, so even the academics was really mm. just about mm. that same thing. Mm. And now I teach a course on historical Jesus in the Jewish studies department of all places at Sydney University. Yeah. So not religion, not theology. Um, it's just really a Jewish history course. Jesus was a Galilean Jew. Yeah. And um, that's... That's the extent of my academic involvement. I'd never want to be a full-time academic. I don't have the temperament, uh, probably don't have the gifts, <laughs> uh, but I'm happy to have a hand in it. Yes, and I guess it's it's very helpful for you in terms of navigating what I see you as, as doing in terms of the, the public sphere, the intellectual sphere, but also kind of having that sort of pastoral approach to it because obviously you hear the kinds of issues and problems people are going through on a weekly basis through through what you do in that way. Yeah, I, I often feel that um, these things keep me grounded liking people, mm-hmm. which is always good to like people, <laughs> uh, and liking what's true. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people who are a bit skeptical of the faith worry that Christianity doesn't have any intellectual credibility. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to um, help them see that it, doesn't always, but it can. Maybe a bit later on in the second half of today's program, I'd love to maybe open up whether that study itself led you to any questions or concerns of your own. But we'll leave that for the second half. I want to kind of um, ask you about the the Public Centre for Christianity. That's um, a relatively recent sort of thing that was established in Australia, um, I think out of the Bible Society in, in Australia. What's, um, what's the purpose of this particular institution that you founded? Yeah, so we started um, back in 2007, actually, and it was just a crazy idea Mm. uh, that a couple of scholar friends and I had, and had had for a decade or more, but had no means to accomplish it. And the idea was simply, imagine if there were uh, a group of scholars who could also communicate, 
and um, engage the public media with a generous, thoughtful Christianity. Wouldn't that be great? And there came an opportunity uh, in 2007 where I was actually about to move to England uh, to take a um, semi-academic job. Mm. And uh, a friend in Australia said, oh, England doesn't need any more of what you've got to offer. Uh, stay here. What would it take to keep you here? And I opened my big mouth about this idea of scholar communicators. And he said, give me 48 hours. <laughs> Within 24 hours, he'd found a very significant grant wow. that made it possible just mm. like that wow. to start the Center for Public Christianity. Um and that, that seed funding allowed us to employ people, get offices, um, get a, you know, a, a TV and radio studio, and just start. We arrived at the office day one and thought, okay, let's try and write an opinion piece for the local Sydney Morning Herald, mm. which is a pretty you know, skeptical but reputable mm. major broadsheet newspaper. And so we sat down, we wrote a piece, sent it off. Within a day, they said, yeah, sure, this will go, go in tomorrow's paper. We're like, what? It worked? <laughs> and uh, so that's what we kept on doing, just writing opinion pieces. Yeah. And the opinion pieces led to um, media appearances, you know, mm -hmm. because if someone, you mm -hmm. know, if a media outlet sees something interesting argued yeah. in an op-ed, mm -hmm. they invite you for a radio interview. And um, it really developed out of that. Um, I continued to write books. I continued mm -hmm. to do academic mm -hmm. stuff. But um, engaging the media was an important part of it, as were making documentaries. Yeah, absolutely. And so I led CPX. Um, the Center for Public Christianity uh, for 10 years and uh, they were just fantastic years. Mm, mm. And uh, as you say, it began with writing op-eds and obviously branched out into other forms of media that mm. you started pursuing. Um, and, and overall, as I see it, this has been about trying to change the the, the tenor of the conversation in the media, uh, which is uh, can be very largely dismissive or critical uh, or anti-religion even. Mm -hmm. um, and so you, I guess it's not, that you're specifically trying to evangelize, but you are kind of trying to, I suppose, feed a different perspective on faith. We want to make Christ public. Mm. And we're happy to do that on any topic. Um, and so just as happy to write a film review or uh, engage with uh, environmental theory mm. as much as write um, an Easter opinion piece yeah. arguing yeah. Jesus rose again yeah. in the mainstream yeah, press. Yeah. Yeah. So we uh, have been happy to do everything. Mm. Um, uh, but yes, trying to convince the average Australian who may not know a Christian, at least they may not know, you know, they may not have a friend who they really know is a Christian, mm. um, convince them that uh, the idea of Christians being mean and dumb isn't always the case. It can be the case, but we, we often feel it's a huge win for Christianity if people watching us in the media or reading an op-ed come away going, Oh, that Christian wasn't as dumb and mean as I thought. We go, yes, that's fantastic. Because at least it gives them, you know, good reasons to either investigate or not investigate Christianity I, instead I of the silly reasons. Yeah. I often feel the same way about my, my unbelievable radio show and podcast, <clears throat> which is, is always presenting both sides of the case. Mm. But hopefully a skeptic who listens will at least come away with with at least one preconception gone, which is that Christians are people who believe in fairy, fairy tales and are basically brain dead. Uh, so so I can see the, the attraction of that. What about the general climate, though, <clears throat> in Australia? Do you find that there is a lot of scepticism out there in the kind of general population towards Christianity? Um, what's, what does it look like in terms of on the church front? I mean, a lot of us are familiar with your probably most famous church export, Hillsong. But um, what, what does it actually look like in Australia when it comes to 
the, the general acceptance of Christianity, I suppose. It's mixed. And that word really does sum it up. Um, so we have uh, about 15% church attendance um, up to once a month mm -hmm. in Australia, which is, is actually, that's a lot of people. Yeah. Um, you know, more people attend church each week than watch our biggest rating TV show on the yeah. weekend. So it's not a little thing. No. Um, and weirdly, more people attend church than play all forms of competitive sport in Australia. On, per weekend, does it? Per weekend, yeah. Oh, great. Right. Uh, which is kind of weird considering mm. sport's meant to be our religion. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, so uh, it, it's really mixed. And actually, some studies have been done that have found uh, top 10 perceptions of Christians um, uh, by the average Australian population. And um, sort of 10 to 6 are judgmental, opinionated, you know, hypocritical. And 5 to 1 are kind, truthful, caring. Mm. And you look at that, that data, that's quite <laughs> fresh actually, just a couple of years ago, uh, and you think, hang on, is there one half of Australia that thinks Christians are all jerks and another that thinks they're really nice? Or is it that the average Australian has two Christianities in their head? Mm. And I think this is the, the better thesis. A Christianity in their head that they have met or mm. at least seen on the telly that is judgmental and hypocritical and bigoted, frankly. Mm. And yet there's Auntie Flo, you know, yeah. who's obviously that you know really mm. into Christianity and is the most beautiful person in my extended mm. family, mm. sort of. Mm. Um, and, and so as Christians interact with the general Australia, it seems to me we can activate one or other of those mm. perceptions mm. of Christians very easily. And, and <clears throat> rather like here in the UK or in the US, often perhaps the, the negative impressions come from when the general population see the, the church as being somehow anti-stuff or bigoted mm. or whatever mm. it might be. Though those are often can, can just be perceptions from the media more than anything. I mean, there was one big issue that, that obviously last year was, was a big kind of defining issue for Australia, the gay marriage kind of referendum in a sense that wasn't legally binding, but I think was soon put into law. Um, which saw gay marriage become legal. That happened here in the UK a few years ago as well. Yeah. It's happened recently in America. Um, you were among a number who were, um, I think, asking people to consider not see it, not not taking that option of, of gay marriage becoming legal. What what was the kind of the reasoning that you were trying to put forward to? How were you trying to influence the, from your perspective, uh, without becoming across as the arrogant, narrow-minded, bigoted Christians or whatever? Um, how were you trying to kind of feed into that whole debate that was going on? Um, I was trying to avoid uh, being in one or other of those political camps. Mm. So there was a no campaign mm. um, that uh, I, I didn't have anything to, to no. do with. And uh, we, we were asked to be involved. The, the Center for Public Christianity was asked to be involved. And it was clear to us that that wasn't the sort of thing okay. that we were interested in because um, legislating on that kind of issue... Um, I think has limited scope mm, mm. Uh, and it seemed to us um, from way out that the result was going to be a pretty clear mm. yes to same-sex mm. marriage so um, we didn't want to en engage with the no campaign mm. uh, or the yes campaign obviously mm. um, and uh, cpx itself remained completely silent okay. through that through that whole thing um, 
I did a little bit of public engagement mm. on it as just John Dixon mm. mm-hmm. had some thoughts. Yeah. And my goal was not to persuade people to vote no, but to help the average Australian see that um, maintaining the classical view of marriage mm-hmm. is not necessarily dumb or mean. Mm. That was the only thing right. I wanted to do. Mm. I mm. didn't want to uh, move people to vote a particular way. Um, but help what I knew would be a majority of Australians who were voting yes to same-sex marriage, at least consider that uh, this old view is shared by humanity um, universally, frankly, Mm. for a reason. It isn't mere tradition. There was actually a logic to it. And yet Christians can hold that traditional view and still be completely fine with a country that votes yes to same-sex marriage and be as cheerful the day before, or the day after as the mm. day before, mm. and engage with same-sex couples just as cheerfully. Mm. Th- that's the kind of vision right. I wanted to offer mm. um, and still want to offer. Yeah. It's still a yeah. major yeah. blocker for people. Mm. But as soon as they can see, you don't have to be an idiot or a jerk mm. to hold traditional marriage as the kind of the ideal. As soon as they can see that, they're willing to listen to other stuff Christians mm. might talk mm. about. Yeah. I mean, do do you feel like as those kinds of social issues have come more and more onto the radar that might be in conflict with, you know, traditional evangelical kind of views um, that that it's been harder at any level for, for churches to kind of put their, you know, put themselves across in Australia? Do you think that it has sort of cemented a kind of view in the public's mind that these, these are the regressives, we're the progressives? Yeah, uh, it has. And I significantly blame the no campaign really for the way okay. it conducted itself um <clears throat> yeah it, it was a negative campaign it mm. was if you vote this way terrible things will happen right and even if some of those terrible things about discrimination law and so mm. on and the, the status of religion even if some of those things have come true it was entirely negative scare campaign Instead of saying, here's, here's one or two reasons we think traditional marriage isn't as dumb and mean as you thought, mm, mm. That, that would have been great. Mm. Then, then uh, traditional Christians would have lost well. And right. I often feel losing well is, is the mission of the moment. Not, not deliberately go out to lose. Mm. Uh, try and persuade, yeah. but do it with such a cheerfulness um, and a spirit of generosity that when you lose, you lose really well. And people go, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, they're good losers, at least. I think that's a great place okay. for Christians to occupy, because losing well is a Christian specialty from the beginning. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll talk more in a moment's time. This is the profile. You're listening to me, Justin Bradley, in conversation with John Dixon today, Bible scholar, ordained Anglican minister, author of many books, including uh, A Doubter's Guide to Jesus. We'll talk about that next, and the project that John's been involved in recently, a special documentary called for the love of God. You're listening to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. Don't forget, you can find this online at premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile or wherever you get your podcasts from. And we'll be back in a couple of minutes time. After growing his Californian congregation from 30 members to 6,000, Francis Chan turned his back on the American megachurch model. Look at churches. There are so many who exist that are not making disciples. People are not getting baptized, and yet they're spending a fortune. How is it then that the underground church in China grew to 100 million people? Inspired by churches in Asia, the acclaimed preacher believes he's now promoting a more authentic expression of Christianity. 
Read the full interview with Francis Chan exclusively in this month's Premier Christianity magazine. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to the second half of today's edition of the programme. I'm Justin Briley. Uh, in the interviewing chair this week for the profile with John Dixon, Bible scholar, Anglican minister. He's an Aussie as well. Uh, did you come over just for us, John? I doubt it. Probably doing a few other things. While this is here. a very special moment in my trip. <laughs> That's a great way of putting it. Um, uh, you are the uh, the founder of the Public Centre for Christianity in Australia, which you've been telling us about. I'm looking forward to hearing more about uh, this film that you've been working on so hard over the last year or so. The profile comes to you in partnership with Premier Christianity magazine. If you'd like a free sample copy of the latest edition of the magazine, go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Um, John, we've been talking about your growing up, the rock band, uh, going into sort of more academic stuff, uh, your ministry, and uh, and the way that all of this has been about making Christ more public, essentially. Um, uh, someone told me, and you can confirm whether this is, is true or not, that you were partly the inspiration behind the Hillsong song, The Creed, which is the, uh, the, the kind of the Christian doctrines, the beliefs, the orthodox Christian beliefs uh, set to music, and it's been fantastically successful. Is that true? Uh, I had nothing to do with the actual writing of it, so it comes with no royalty. <laughs> but yes, I am the reason they wrote it, because I tweeted saying Hillsong would be doing world Christianity a favor if they put the most shared statement of Christian belief in one of their beautiful songs. Someone tweeted straight back from uh, the Hillsong creative team and said, we'll have a think about it. <laughs> and uh, then I got a phone call from them. <clears throat> and they said, yeah, we're going uh, to give it a go. Fantastic. And would you be willing to, you know, when we've got a demo, come and have a listen? And so I did. They took me out to breakfast and I met the, the songwriters and the creative team. And they played me a demo of the song and said, what do you reckon? And I thought, it's actually really good. It is. It's a <laughs> so great song. I wish I could lay some... <laughs> you know claim to the creativity behind it but that is hey, but all it's them it's kind of nice you know the the rock musician has a second you know uh, aim at aim at stardom through hillsong well there. the rock musician now nerd <laughs> you know I, I love it but that that song you know has been played in, in countless churches we play it in our church and um what i love about it as i'm sure you do is is the fact it is words that go back to the very beginning mm. uh, of the christian faith but done in this tremendous contemporary way um it's a great it's a great statement yeah. about the christians do have some things they share because you hear yeah. a, from mm. a lot of skeptical people you guys can't even work out what you mm. believe yeah, yeah. come back to me when you can agree <laughs> on something well here is 83 words in the original greek mm. 83 words christians say yep we believe this that's yeah. something yeah absolutely um and in a sense kind of takes you back to the fact that from the beginning Christians have been singing their truth mm -hmm. uh, if you like and I think actually the way we imbibe a lot of scripture and doctrinal truth is through singing and maybe that's kind of faded away a bit in more recent kind of the you know charismatic songs that have been a bit more Jesus is my boyfriend as they say uh, and haven't contained as much of that kind of core truth and and stuff and maybe we're kind of moving back to kind of embracing more of that again now? I think we are, and I think it's a beautiful thing. I mean, the evidence we have from the New Testament period is that Christians sang psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. 
and we have a couple of examples of the songs in the New Testament embedded mm. there. Mm. Um, very probably Colossians 1 and Philippians 2 contain yeah. early hymns, not in the classic style we'd recognize, but certainly in the um, chanting style. And um, one, one of the documents I played with up in Oxford um, in my research is the, the earliest fragment we have mm. of, a, of a hymn, a Christian hymn, with musical notation. Mm. It's from about the year 200. But it, I mean, there were plenty of other hymns, but mm. this is the first hymn that actually has the ancient musical yeah. notation mm. on it. I intend to do something with it, by the way. Mm. Um, and it's obviously in Greek, uh, but it's incredibly theological. Yeah. And very trinitarian right already by you know the year 200 it's mm. very trinitarian mm. in its outlook so yeah singing's a crucial yeah. part of uh, christian engagement with the public yeah and um personal devotion and it strikes me hillsong is one of the you know the most well-known contemporary christian songwriters these days their songs are sung in churches all over the world and have been for a few decades now um that they they are it's interesting to see that they really have in my view, developed a lot of good, strong theology and biblical content in a lot of their most recent stuff. Do you think that, that they're sort of seeing that now? As, I, know, as kind of, I know it for a fact. Yeah, yeah I've, I've become quite friendly with a lot of those yeah. people and they are really into theology. Mm. They're reading John Stott. They're reading Packer, James Packer. They're reading Tom Wright. They're reading Tim Keller. You know, mm. it's like uh, they're, they're really excited about grounded theology connected with something really old and it is showing they've employed a guy called robert ferguson who's like the theologian in charge of the songwriting so all songs um go through ferguson for sort of review and he's got a really good eye to um to theology but the great thing is they they don't seem to um worry about taking risks with poetry Mm, mm. you know sometimes people from my more conservative tradition Mm. are so concerned about the truth Mm. we uh, don't let poetry get in the way right (laughs) (laughs) but actually uh you just have to read the psalms yeah to realize actually you can press the borders of theology yeah yeah to evoke something that's Mm, real mm. uh with good poetry and i think i think hillsong are doing this pretty well do you have an, an example in mind particularly of, of where they've kind of done that really successfully kind of blending that that sort of doctrinal stuff with something quite poetic something that kind of tries to express the truth or well, something well i think this creed song yeah. is, a, is the classic example yeah, of them yeah. being really theological there's another one i'm not i don't actually listen to much hillsong yeah. music um uh th- there is one i think it's called grace alone mm. uh or grace is enough anyway, I, could, I could yeah. almost sing it for yeah. you but um uh, th- this seems really theologically thought through and yeah. um, sees everything through the lens of Christ's death and resurrection as the grace for mm. seeing all of life. Yeah. Well, obviously, it's it's great that you you've had a, a little part to play in in, in one of the the songs there. Um, in terms of um, your own journey, though, with with Jesus and specific, specifically the historical Jesus, um, when you began that journey of of engaging with the academic study of the text what we can know about jesus and so on that in many ways has been a big part of your your story and you've written books in this area and so on um did it come with any doubts and uncertainties along the way because i think a lot of christians when they start to get into the specifics of um, the biblical manuscripts and what we can know and what we can't know suddenly um they're they're presented with the fact that we're doing history here and sometimes history doesn't always paint a perfectly obvious picture of what was going on and for some people who kind of like to deal in certainty let's say 
that can be something that's difficult to, to square with their faith. Yes. Um, every Christian is stuck with history uh, because our texts are historical. I mean, even the skeptic agrees they're making historical claims. Uh, it's about this guy who was crucified under the fifth governor of Judea, mm. right? So that's not saying God has a wonderful plan for your life, <laughs> which is unverifiable. Christians say this happened. Yeah. Um, and so every Christian is stuck with this in a way that actually the other f world faiths are not. They're, they're sort of blissfully untouched <laughs> by the historical scrutiny. Um, uh, so I, I think every Christian has to just get on with the sense that these are, these are historical claims and they ought to be open to historical scrutiny. To my own sort of doubt uh, and faith, uh, I suspect that when I was first really getting into history, mm. I revered history mm. as a discipline, as a way of knowing. And be because I revered it, perhaps a little too much, I almost came to the point where if there were some doubts about something in the Gospels, mm. it, you know, it would cause me a little doubt. Or um, if there are some things in the Gospels that, that history can't, can't actually judge on because there are no mm. external documents, I would be a little bit worried about that. Not, not, I never had a crisis of faith, but I, I do remember thinking so highly of history that if history couldn't back up the Gospels, the Gospels, you know, maybe mm. a mm. little bit wobbly. I've since come through to have a much more measured view of history. Mm. It's just one way of knowing mm. certain rules that uh, in some ways lowest common denominator yeah. that, um, you know, a skeptical person like Bart Emmon can agree with a you know, not so skeptical person like Richard Borkham uh, on the method of history. Yeah. And so um, that's great, but it can't be the only way of knowing stuff. Um, historical method um, may lead to some awkward conclusions about things in the Gospels or Paul's letters or whatever. But if you don't revere history as the only way you could know about such things, mm. then it's not going to cause you problems. And I think I've got to that point where I now think history is really fun, mm. but I'm not in awe of it. Yeah. I think it's a limited human discipline like all sorts of things. And my confidence in the Gospels isn't based only on history. It is partly based on history. I'm more than ever convinced the core of the narrative is historically sound. Mm. Um, but history doesn't give you all the bits and pieces of the Gospels, and who cares? Of course, the the historical aspects are kind of important in, in terms of um, a lot of people to have some basic questions, you know, about Jesus. And, and I think the problem is that there does exist, unfortunately, in culture, this idea, probably populated a lot by internet sites that jesus never even existed you know mm. that's that's a, a common misconception that's out there um what would be sort of your your kind of i don't know two minute response to the the person who says ah but i read a website the other day and that turns out jesus doesn't even exist well my two second one is read something other than a website <laughs> um because you find out very quickly that mainstream secular scholarship has zero doubts that the broad outline of Jesus' life, this Galilean teacher, supposed miracle worker who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, is beyond reasonable doubt. Um, I mean, there are historical ways we can actually demonstrate that if we have more than two minutes, but I think there's a shortcut. Go to any one of the deliberate um, secular compendiums of ancient historical knowledge. They're very easy to find mm. in great libraries. Mm. There's the Oxford Classical Dictionary, 
1600 pages mm -hmm. summing up everything we know about mm -hmm. ancient Greece and Rome. Uh, there's the Cambridge Ancient History, Volume 4, which deals with the Augustan period. Uh, there's the Cambridge History of Judaism. Uh, there's Brill New Pauli, the, the, you know, the big German 22 volume mm -hmm. uh, historical uh, study. And go to the bits on Jesus and read them. And you'll find zero doubt is raised in what are secular compendiums of scholarship about the broad outline of Jesus' life. It is beyond doubt. So, I mean, although, you know, people can read on the internet, ah, oh, Josephus was tampered with and mm. Paul believed in a mythical Jesus, mm. not a historical Jesus. All that is a little bit nutty and there's a, there's a really easy way for people to see it. Mm. Go to the compendiums. There's no doubt. You wrote a book uh, recently, A Doubter's Guide to Jesus. What do you find are the, the main doubts that do surface about Jesus when you speak to people? Well, when you jump over the did he exist business, um, <clears throat> people obviously think about the miracles. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Sure, he might have said lovely things, and I quite like those lovely things he said. Can't quite remember on the spot anything that he did say, but <laughs> I'm sure he said, you know, be nice to people. Um, so people are kind of accepting of that, but, it's, but the idea that he gave sight to the blind and healed the lame and so on, that's really problematic. And the way I approach it in the book is not to say I can prove the miracles, but it's interesting that even the most secular uh, scholars today um, agree Jesus did things everyone thought were miracles mm. because the evidence is too good to just dismiss it, to say, oh, that's a late accumulation that you know he, Jesus was not remembered in the first tradition as, as a healer. Well, he was, he very clearly was. Um, and so even someone like Paula Fredrickson, who has no Christian faith, uh, will say that Jesus did things contemporaries believed were miracles. Um, and so what I think that gets a reader to the point where they go, oh, we have the kind of evidence a miracle worker would leave behind. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but at least the data that we have is consistent with. And so they, they park that and mm, keep reading mm, and mm. You know, stuff about the judgment of God that Jesus preached. There's a whole chapter in my book about Jesus as judge, mm. which is, causes doubts because it's not a very pleasant thought. And the way doubts so often work is really just psychological. I don't want there to be judgment. I don't, I don't want this idea. And so I doubt Mm. that Jesus really said that or whatever. Mm. Um, and of course, the resurrection is the punchline of the whole thing. And um, again, um, history can't demonstrate that he rose again with uh, deference to some other scholars who mm. think uh, that, that, that it can. I think the rules of history are entirely secular and naturalistic and they're rules I'm happy to play with. Mm -hmm. And what we can say about the resurrection is that there was very probably an empty tomb and certainly many people claimed in good faith to have seen him after his death. They seem to be the things, even highly skeptical people will say, yeah, that's, mm -hmm. that's very likely. The interesting thing is that's exactly the kind of evidence a resurrection would leave behind. Mm -hmm. It's therefore consistent with mm. it being true. Um, it's not so consistent with it being false. And all I want readers to do is get to the point where they go, okay, hi history at least is consistent with the Jesus narrative. I'm willing to really read the Jesus narrative for myself. And that, for me, that's how I view history. It takes away very bad arguments for not looking into this. It provides pretty strong arguments for why Christianity can be viewed um, with, a, with a level of confidence, or the Gospels can be read with a level of confidence. So not so that people will become Christians as a result of reading my book, um, I think that's very unlikely with a more historically oriented mm. book. But they may pick up a gospel 
and say, I'm going to read this for myself. I think that's where the scary business begins. Yeah. Because people arrive at their doubts and their belief based not just on intellectual considerations, but um, social, psychological, emotional, etc. And when they bring their whole self to a gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, I don't mind, take, <laughs> just go, go for it. Um, I think the whole of their person, intellectual, social, psychological, is confronted by an extraordinary person mm. that, that, that captivated me. And I, I, just, I still trust that he's captivating people all around the world. If you want to get hold of it, again, the book is called A Doubter's Guide to Jesus. <clears throat> and I'm sure both Christians and people who are on a search would, would benefit from, from reading it. Um, uh, I, I want to ask you before we talk about um, uh, the Love of God film, given that the average person maybe has all kinds of different perspectives and doubts and questions on Christianity, if, if you were just sat down with someone and you had 90 seconds, let's say, to just to explain in simple terms... <laughs> what the Christian gospel is, what the message is, what you're inviting people to uh, if, if they're going to become a Christian. How, how would you try to explain that? Very difficult to do in 90 <laughs> seconds. But I w- you know, I'd probably convince people to read one of the four gospels. I would use my 90 seconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, unless they were dying and said, what must I do to be saved? <laughs> I would just say, cry out to the God of mercy. And he will lovingly forgive you because mm. Christ died and rose for you. All your punishment taken away. Right. Mm. So I'd, if, they're, if they're like, what yeah. must I do to yeah, be yeah. saved? Yeah, yeah. That's where I go. Mm-hmm. If, I, if I have 90 seconds and pro- likely to catch up with them again, I give them a bunch of reasons why the Gospels uh, can be read as real accounts of the life of Jesus. Because I'm absolutely convinced uh, by something that ancient Christianity was unanimous about, but modern Christianity not so much. That is... The gospel is what's in the gospels. Mm-hmm. That's how come they're called gospels, because ancient Christians knew that what's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is the gospel that was preached. They didn't just invent this word gospel as a new literary genre. It was actually this is the proclamation. This is what everyone proclaimed. Now in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and of course Mark opens up his gospel by saying this is the gospel, right? Mm. So you can't really argue with that. That that is the gospel. So I would use my time. To say the, these are real accounts of real historical of a real historical life that fit with the archaeology, that fit with the text that we have of the period, fit beautifully into the Jewish context that we know of Jesus, um, are historical biographies, and uh, you'll find that character really compelling. And in the end, I would ask people to look out for this punchline: that God is opening up His kingdom to people who don't deserve it through the life, teaching, healings death and resurrection of Jesus, the king of that kingdom. It's a good answer. Um, Let's talk about, uh, with the remaining time we've got, the latest project from CPX and yourself, which is For the Love of God, How the Church is Better and Worse Than You Ever Imagined. It's premiered recently here in the UK. It's been in lots of cinemas in Australia. Uh, People can get hold of it via the website. Uh, I know that you're putting it out on as many different channels. You've had a version go out on ABC, which is kind of the Australian equivalent of the BBC. Um, So it's a very exciting project. But what is uh, For the Love of God, if you wouldn't mind telling us? It's a brutally honest, uh, we think, brutally honest account of the best and worst of Christian history. Uh, Center for Public Christianity had devised a documentary on the world religions. We were going to do, we'd written it, we're going to do something on the five major world faiths. And then three and a half years ago, maybe more now, we just felt like 
Religions aren't going anywhere. We can come back to that. The real question at the moment is, has Christianity only damaged? Has it just raped and pillaged through history and it's bad for us today? So we set about doing that, and um, it, it took us three years to write and um, produce, uh, where we offer real honesty about the Crusades, um, the Inquisitions, the witch trials, but also honesty about uh, the beautiful things that Christianity has given the West, um, the, the motifs that um, secular humanists most love today, are entirely Christian gifts. What I know do you that, mean by I know that? that annoys my, my secular atheist friends, but it's so palpably the case. What kind of motifs are you talking if about? If you went back into Rome um, or Athens in the middle of the first century and said, is every human being inestimably and equally precious? You could not find someone who thought so. Um, the Greek and Roman paradigm said that that um, maybe the stuff of humans, the physical stuff of humans, is equal, equal, equally low, but the gifts that individual humans have—intellectual, physical, artistic—mean that people aren't equal. And so there was a strong empirical argument about grading human beings. Um, but you might find a few Christians in the year fifty in Rome and. Um, in, in Athens, and Jews, of course, who said mm, they're all made in the image of God. Absolutely, inestimably, equally precious. And it was the Christian proclamation of that Jewish motif of the image of God that gave the West its view that everyone is equal. Mm. And it's pretty hard to argue out of that based on just the empirical sources. I had a very similar conversation in this studio with N.T. Wright and Tom Holland, who's a popular uh, historian here in the UK. Yeah, I, know, I know Tom Holland's yeah, work. Yeah. yeah, and Tom very much said the same thing, that it, uh, as a non-Christian, it was actually studying the, the Roman Empire as a historian that made him realize just how much we owe today to Christianity, which was so radically different in its day and age to, to what was around it. The notion of compassion to the poor that the absolutely poor um, actually deserve the, the wealth of the rich. That, that, that's how valuable. That, that was unknown in Greece and Rome. Um, the doctrine of humility, that actually the goal of life is to use all of your powers in service of others. I mean, the very word tapenos in Greek, humility, and humilitas in Latin, um, meant servitude, crushed, mm -hmm. down low. Um, Christians, in almost a macabre upending of values, said, no, they're really good words. I know they mean low, but it's really good. <laughs> it's really good to be low. Even if you're high, if you lower yourself for right. the sake of another, yeah. that's awesome. And people just thought, what are you yeah. talking about? But that caught on. And even the, our average secular atheist yeah. today goes, yeah, yeah, if you're a great person, like with all sorts of gifts, if you pour yourself out for others, that's really beautiful. But they don't realize just... What a strange idea that would have been going back 2,000 years before the advent of you Christianity. You need a story that yeah. says absolute greatness went to the absolute shame of a Roman cross in order to upend all of that. So that's how the church is better than you imagined in that sense. But then obviously those same secularists will frequently point out the Crusades, huh. uh, the way they would say the church kind of 
brought about the dark ages by kind of you know uh, standing on top of scientific inquiry and that kind of thing all of that stuff that's a familiar narrative um how does the film try to deal with those kinds of issues uh, again honestly um that the the caricature of the story that you just told almost no one in a me, in a medieval department or middle ages department in universities today agrees with okay in fact they even avoid using the term dark ages because it was far from dark in terms mm. of its literature and philosophy and so on um but christians did some terrible things mm. um uh, you can see a pivot in the fourth fifth century when christians are starting to talk about just war for the first time and it's quite a breakthrough for christians mm. they uh, they were mostly entirely pacifists up to that point. Um, but Augustine and others had to do some fancy thinking about, oh, well, there are so many of us now and the emperors want our opinion. Here's how you could have a just war. And they, so they allowed the possibility of warfare that Christ would approve of. It was still a warfare that only had to be in uh, response to evil or to protect uh, victims, had to be conducted in a way that didn't leave uh, those who lost uh, feeling resentful of the victor and so on. There are all sorts of things, but it opened a door. Mm. So that by the um, 8th and 9th century, as Christians moved throughout uh, Europe, they adopted the kind of warrior culture all around them and justified it theologically. And you eventually get the Crusades mm. um, at the end of the 11th century. And the, the dogma was, um, not only does God approve of this battle, uh, but you can be saved by participating in this battle. That that was the new thing. It'll earn you kind of credit in heaven, basically. Yeah. Um, and I, the way we treat this in the documentary is we interview the top scholars in the world, Thomas Madden in the US and Christopher Time at Oxford University, that everyone will say they're the top of the tree on the Crusades, and we just let them speak. Mm. Um, so we were very deliberate about the kind of scholars we chose. We had 50 interview subjects, and um, they are recognizably the world leaders in all of these areas. Mm. And we can ha- we can happily, or maybe not happily, but um, willingly offer the terrible things Christians mm, did. Mm. You kind of own up to the good and the bad. Yeah, it was Jesus who said, "Take the log out of your own eye." <laughs> okay, so this mm. part of the film is is doing that. Um, but part of what gives us the freedom to do that is anyone can tell that when a Christian is hateful and violent, they're not following their master; they're defying their master. And the basic argument of the film is Jesus wrote a beautiful tune, the love of enemies, self-giving, and so on, uh, that Christians have sometimes performed beautifully with lasting results, and sometimes they've gone right out of key Hmm. and participated in all that is base and common to humanity, uh, warfare, torture, and so on. Christians didn't invent that. Hmm. They didn't give that to the Western world. You just go back to Greece and Rome. They were doing fine on the torture Hmm. and warfare Hmm. front. Um, the real gifts of Christianity are not their participation in violence. The real gift is the um, the love of love mm. that our culture now assumes. We love love. Love is awesome. Uh, well, that came from somewhere. Yeah. What kind of reactions are you getting to people who go and see the film? Mostly from the mainstream uh, media in Australia, surprise that Christians a center for public Christianity has produced something that's pretty honest about the failings of Christianity. And, and I think this is in a good context. quality as well. That's, that's and not it's, mentioned. You know, Let's the production not values that. are exactly. Production values are, are great. Um, but I, I, I think there's a mood in Australia 
particularly following um, a royal commission into child sexual abuse in, mm. in the churches, that says Christians cover up their sins. Mm. You know, if a priest has been caught molesting someone, they move that priest, they cover it up. Mm. In that context, I think people have thought, well, that's really weird that Christians just owning up to the terrible. Um, so actually, we, we've been delighted at the response from mainstream media. I must say some Christians are disappointed uh, with the production that maybe we've let Team Jesus down a little bit by being too um, candid candid about mm. uh, the stories we tell. Mm. Um, because the film doesn't work uh, as we start on all the bad stuff <laughs> so that by the, by the last 45 <laughs> minutes you've forgotten it because it's all great. We, yeah. we, don't, we go, we yeah. go back and, back and forth, back yeah, and, yeah, forward, yeah. and basically say they've sung the tune beautifully and they've sung it terribly. Mm. They've sung the tune beautifully and they've sung it terribly. But I'm so glad that you are telling that story, honestly, because I think, especially with what I do with my unbelievable show and podcast, is is people want to hear both sides, mm. and they they kind of can tell if they're just getting the the version, mm. <laughs> uh, just the one side, the polished and neatly presented version, and and that's not not the way life ever works, is it? So it's good to have both sides. It is remarkable and surprising, and. You know, I've watched your podcast many times, and it's a perfect example of this exact thing. If people want to get hold of it, wherever they are in the world, um, even if it's not showing in a cinema near them, how can they do that? Uh, betterandworse.film. And you can watch the four episodes or the 90-minute version. Uh, you can purchase it. But the amazing thing is you can watch the entire thing in five-minute grabs if you want, oh, wow. free, free wow. of charge. So you can mm. search Crusades mm. or search mm. Witch Trials. And just go to the scenes on that. Great. Free. Fantastic. Uh, again, that's, um, I've got another one here for the love of God project.com, but you've got better and worse dot film. Better and worse dot film. To remember. That's an easy <laughs> one. Uh, thank you so much for joining me Absolute on the program pleasure. today. John. Thank you. And if you want to find out more about the uh, Center for Public Christianity as well, that's publicchristianity.org, a fantastic organization that John founded out in Australia. Um, it's been so good having you on the profile today. Thank you very much. All the best as you go back to Oz at some point in the near future. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again soon, hopefully, when you're next over. Thanks, Justin. You've been listening to The Profile with me, Justin Briley. Don't forget, you can find today's show wherever you are in the world as a podcast or via our website, premierchristianradio.com forward slash The Profile. And don't forget, while you're at it, to check out the latest edition of Premier Christianity magazine. We're brought to you in partnership with that monthly publication. If you'd like a free sample copy, you'll find it at premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Coming up next, some of the best bits from the past week here on Premier.